Welcome to Stage, the Streaming Age podcast. Today's conversation will focus on the work and the universe of Himali Singh Soin. Skyron Dati Thomas is her guest host, and Stage is a new digital initiative by TVA21, Thyssen Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Remember to check out our platform on www.stage.tba21.org, and if you like this episode, which we really hope you do, please subscribe to it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Don't forget to share with your friends, and if you have a minute to spare, please do leave us a review. Without further ado, this is Stage. In 2020, the super cyclone Amphan hit both Bangladesh and West Bengal with wind speeds of over 250 kilometers per hour. In the densely knit mangrove forests of the Sundarbans, large swaths of land were swallowed up by water and by rain. The Sundari trees that held together the scattered land lay dying of the salt carried over by the wind. In the wake of this tragedy, we start by asking, can a subcontinent be without its land? This podcast brings together a collection of responses to artist Himali Singh Soin's new sound works. They are, among many other things, about shifting land, hybrid bodies, and polar South Asian imaginations. Soin made these pieces while in COVID-19 lockdown in New Delhi, India, in one heart of the South Asian subcontinent. She worked on them in close physical proximity to the district of Okla, the site of a recent national resistance movement led by the women who live on the banks of the charcoal gray contaminated waters of the Yamuna River. In Okla, both nomads and migrants come together in deep community. In contrast to the ruling party's political belief that India is a Hindu state, the area is incredibly diverse, and we hear parallels between Soin's oral landscape of the Azan and the Arctic's crackling ice. Perhaps each nation-state in South Asia may be seen as the result of a similar longing and spillage, each a territory made up of erratically drawn borders and forced migration. With her work, Soin proposes a subcontinentment, where the subcontinent aspires to contentment, a coming to terms with itself by looking inwardly out, its freedom found in words with multiple limbs and multiple entry points. Thank you. 
South Asian futurism does not fantasize about a future because it cannot isolate the future from the past. It fantasizes about a life in between, says Soin in Subcontinentment. Each contribution in this podcast, made by artists, writers, and thinkers, negotiates this very premise. We are taken down the roots of colonial history, up to foreign lands and alien planets, and given delicate glimpses of homegrown intimacies. Along the way, we meet humans and human hybrids, aliens and bioshields, wild plants and untamed animals. We travel through time, we visit the future, but never quite leave the past behind. We begin with a storm in the sea and the legend of Lady Antigua. At the bow of a mighty ship stands the bust of Lady Antigua, a formidable woman who once sailed the corners of the world. They say she could talk to the ocean. She was a pirate moving through the thick waters of the Indian Ocean. She would rescue the indentured and run fear through the hearts of tribute ships, much like the water she knew so well, as well as the lines in her palms. She too was colonized. She is now traded as a charm of imperial ships, a protection against salty storms. She is an offering and a curse, a currency of diplomacy. In the first of our series, a piece by Rux Media Collective, we hear the story of a similar offering, a live rhinoceros sent as a gift for Pope Leo X by the King of Portugal, Manuel I, in late 1515. A fragment on time and a runaway rhinoceros from the last international by Rux Media Collective. And I am Ganda, the runaway rhinoceros. Adrift between continents and centuries, lost and found and lost again. Imagined but forgotten, shipwrecked and shafted, the gift of one age to another. Look at me. Consider my strength, my girth, my gall, my horn. Think how I must have haunted the men who described me to Albrecht Dürer, after the King of Portugal's ship with me as principal cargo, a present from faraway India for a Pope, drowned on the way to Rome from Madrid. I have a way of sinking just when I'm about to make an appearance, and a way of manifesting just as I'm about to drown. I come ashore onto your time, wading out from the water, an amphibious ambiguous rhinoceros in ghostly hippopotamus disguise. I am every anomalous history, every time out of joint. I am an occupation of your history. I have new ways of doing old things like revolution and research, new ways of taking a stand. I am the engine that stalls the march of the sovereign the gun that jams in the executioner's hand, the whale that sinks the ship of state, the tower that crumbles. I am the aphrodisiac and the poison, the seduction and the betrayal, the intoxicant and the hangover, the promise 
and the prison break. I am the ghost of your time in the future, the echo of times past in today. I am history's trespasser and the history of trespassing. I am a traveller, a truant, a troll. The unspeakable, it has to be said. Brief notes made while listening to a betal by Rux Media Collective. The unspeakable arises when the scaffolding of language cannot contain an encounter. How can the unspeakable be spoken about? What has dilated for which language hasn't yet found a concept? Or the description? Through which one may be able to think through it or express it? There is a force by which one produces a world. This force may be in excess of the understanding that one has. Life hibernates, takes time and resurfaces. Thinking about what was hibernating can give us access to a space of thought without pushing it towards a reductive legibility. These situations are event-shaped holes. In these moments, we could begin to act like protagonists in a crime thriller, building up layers of forensic interpretation to transform the event-shaped whole into a rich account of making and unmaking of ways and forms of living. Perhaps Betal asks Vikram, when life and death run a race, who wins? Perhaps Vikram answers, Life is the counterclockwise motion of clock hands on a clock face that runs clockwise towards death. Both life and death must read the numbers, one to run away from and the other to run towards the direction of time. Death doesn't yet win. Life still doesn't lose. But the referee's finger is always pulling the trigger on the starter gun and the alarm never stops ringing. Perhaps Vital says, Bravo, wise king, well played. But let's see if you can get to the heart of my next and best riddle. And so on, and on. Now, Vikram asks Betal, Are you done? The goblin cackles in reply. He is never done. Always, already undone. We continue to think of Ganda the rhinoceros, now lying in the deep sea, resting in a watery grave. In these waters lie many a wreckage, the result of the follies so typical to the human pursuit of land, held together by oceans. The thing is, treasures rarely float. Mohanraj's plea coming up next, we travel to Erigia, an alien planet populated mostly by mammalian alien creatures that live underwater. Gwen and her family, modified with blubber and scales, both water and land-born, seek refuge from a race war and are granted amnesty by the alien Erigians. 
Mohan Raj writes our past and our future with a searing insight into our crumbling present. And so, here she is, reading an extract of the short story, Plea. Humans, going off to live with the Eurasians. Bizarre. It was one thing to share a planet with them, and kind of them too, to give humans permission to settle on the large, unused continent. The Eurasians had no use for it after all, and on this mostly water world, no other sentient species had evolved. The Eurasians didn't speak, but their projective empathy made their feelings clear. Welcome, welcome, they beamed when the humans first arrived. A palpable warmth. The adult Eurasians had mostly ignored them after that first welcome, but their adolescents had taken a real interest in the humans. They'd shown the colonists where the best fishing spots were, and had warned them of oncoming storms so they'd have plenty of time to batten the hatches and hunker down. The humans hadn't been able to do much in return, but the Eurasians didn't seem to mind. And when the first generation of fully modified humans had taken to the seas with bigger lungs, splayed webbed feet, and scales all adapted to spending much more of their lives underwater, the Eurasian adolescents had greeted them with joy. Gwen had grown up living on the beach, never more than a hundred paces from the ocean. She'd blissfully flung herself into the waves, and it was there that she'd met Rose, actually under the water. That had always seemed a sign of good luck for them, for their marriage. They'd been blessed with twenty years of happy life together, and eventually, three healthy children, equally at home on Eris's sandy shores and in its deep waters. It was bewildering to think that could all be snatched away in an instant. She'd been home alone with John when it happened. They were working on the nets, fingers tangled in knots, pulling and tugging, testing for strength. Some would need mending. There were times in the water when Gwen wished for fins instead to be able to cut through even more cleanly, swiftly. But fingers were too useful to give up, as the first generations of experimenting humans had discovered. Most who chose to modify followed a similar path for themselves and their children, a now well-trodden path three generations into colonization. It wasn't an easy life, settling a colony planet. None of the technological luxuries of old Earth, or even the seven daughters, the first planets to be colonized. But Eris, beautiful Eris with its wide, warm oceans, had its own charms. Kneeling there in the sand with her tall, handsome son working beside her, his own calloused fingers as skilled with the knots as hers, Gwen couldn't imagine a better home, a better life. Fish lickers, gray skins, the shouts warned her when the mob was the only word for it, as much as it shocked her to admit it, the mob was still several yards away on the beach. At least a dozen people, all adults, all with skin colors characteristic of the unmodified, an array of creams and pinks and browns. As for her and her son, she wouldn't have called their skin gray. It was gray in parts, but more of a gray-green or gray-blue, like water on a cloudy day. Shimmering with silver scales, gauntlets along their arms, sheathing chest and back and legs as well. Some Jean modded with more scales, some with less. As with hair, you were never quite sure what you'd end up with, but she'd always thought their scale skin was beautiful. The mob clearly disagreed. Her gut clenched. No weapons, not that Gwen could see, but the ugly rage on their faces was clear enough and frightening enough. What had she ever done to them or her son? At 13, John was still a child, a decade and a half from full majority. He couldn't have done anything to offend them. But now wasn't the time to argue with a rabid crowd, no matter what her stupid, stubborn hindbrain wanted. 
Mama instincts kicked in. She grabbed John's hand. Without even speaking, they were moving, in sync, the few short steps to the surf. And then they were in, first running into the shallow waves, then, when the water grew deep enough, diving in, taking refuge in those cool depths. With the first face full of cold water, she could feel her breathing begin to slow, mammalian diving reflex kicking in. Olstock humans could swim too, of course, so she urged John deeper, with silent gestures. They couldn't go as deep as an Eurasian might, but much further than the unmodded. She took them down into the cold and darkness, a deeper world than she usually ventured into. Nictitating membranes slid down, protecting her eyes, though there was little to see here. Peaceful, a cold, quiet expanse. Even with the thick, insulating layer of blubber under her skin, Gwen began to feel chilled. They stayed down until her lungs, finally, began to burn. Their systems were far from base human, better oxygen-carrying capacity in the blood, altered urinary system to help with the bends, better, much better, but not nearly efficient enough. Living entirely underwater was still only a dream. John could stay down longer with his young, powerful body, but... Safer if he came with her, at least for long enough to surface, grab a breath, assess the situation. The sun was setting and the water around them was deserted. The beach as well. It was late. They'd been down longer than she'd realized. Gwen had a sudden panic thought Rose was due back at dinner time with the other children. What if they'd come back already? What if the mob had caught them? Terror lent power to her strokes, and she raced back, outpacing even John's strong shoulders. Their nets lay scattered on the sand, shredded. But she couldn't look at that now. She was staggering through the sand, her legs trembling beneath her, great shaky strides until she was almost at the door. But there, there was Rose, walking down the shore path, Kiara on her shoulders and Matthew beside her, safe. Gwen fell to her knees in the sand. She seemed to have forgotten how to breathe. And now we move up to the north of New Delhi in the shadows of the Himalayas, in a valley with overwritten lines, lines that stand as proxies for borders, for war. Despite the politics of the region, the glacial ice of the Himalayas will melt, and these lands will assume new geopolitical identities. The past will be but a series of versions that no longer exist. As Himali suggests in her own work, the ice is an almanac of speculative entries, missing information, messy observations, recipes, and even maps. Nabla Yahya now takes us to that very ice, to that dispute of land. She attempts, with a critical elegance, to state peace and tranquility and instill a flicker of hope. Here is Nabla Yahya. In September 1993, the agreement on the maintenance of peace and tranquility along the line of actual control in the India-China border areas was signed. Located within the former princely state of Jammu and Kashmir, the line of actual control refers to the disputed demarcation between the territories of India and China. 
This division is paired with a line of control which functions as a de facto border bisecting a territory occupied by both India and Pakistan. Amongst the treacherous behemoths of ice, rock, and garnet, battles have been waged and lives extinguished. All this for the futile promise of control. As of last month, the peace and tranquility of the area surrounding the line of actual control had been disrupted, and the Sino-Indian boundary dispute is now vocal once again. No longer can the Jammu and Kashmir dispute be defined as a bilateral one, nor hidden as a unilateral issue. The matter is now globalized, housed within a nucleus of heated geopolitical relations. This region, the sacred valley amidst the Himalayas, still stands as a bridge between the past and present. This syncretic land of pluralist vision has been a historic link between Central Asia and South Asia, well before it was ever and sincerely declared an integral part of a nation whose statecraft placed land above life. For how does one dare to claim a space when one negates those who exist within it? The irredentist worldview is a nationalist one, callous and brutal. Active dehumanization lies at the core of territorial expansion. Lines are drawn in the sand whilst, in reality, homes are demolished and lives are destroyed. The disputed territory is disrupted and therefore becomes disreputable territory. What is a land without its people? Land is weapon. The borderland is neither here nor there. It is not as caustically kind as a buffer zone or as overtly cruel as a combat zone. It is neither mine nor yours. The border floats between existence and non-existence, much like the Berzach, a metaphysical heterotopia. It stands at the threshold between life and death, a dimension between the realms of the corporeal and the intangible. The flotsam to which the cynic clings is the very thing which will bring about their demise. Hope need not be seen as something belonging to the truly oblivious and naive. Rather, hope belongs to and is nurtured within the most melancholic of souls. I cannot muster much hope on those days. It is then that I refer to the words of W.E.B. Du Bois. We must cling to a hope not hopeless, but unhopeful. This is a rational, proactive hope, one that is founded upon fear and anxiety, but instills the clarity that is necessary to imagine returning once again to the home which does not exist. ever return to a time of borderlessness? Can we fully reconcile with the hybridity and multiplicity of not only our lands but of our bodies? Vishak Soam's book Apsara Engine functions as a portal, a possibility that resists the hard lines of identity and geography. She leads us through a world where bodies mutate and evolve in their own self-discovery. This short story is full of a vulnerability that foregrounds love in the time of catastrophe, tenderness in the time of emergency. Here, in the last segment of our podcast, Vishak Soam 
reads us love song. There are times when I could kill you. Yes, there must be. I am as bad as this. I leave dishes unwashed and pants in the hamper. For days, weeks, I scamper about in thrice-worn socks and briefs. The listing clothes rack is about to give way. Bottles and cans, newspapers, food scraps. I am a great sluggard lying prone on the sofa. My only excuse is that the spiro makes me so. But remember, I have been loyal for 27 years with only the occasional hiccup. And don't think I've forgotten your dalliances. The tall physicist with horsey muscles, the damaged poet with lank hair. Yes, some days you have it in for me, and some days I offer a reminder that I am in great need of you and that I am scared. At the end of a heavy August weekend, outside our car alarms, the drunks at Johnny Max. Inside, here you are, giving yourself a pedicure, one foot propped on a chair. I'm hennaing my hair, steaming two fat artichokes, snacking on pears. I make my famous roasted red vegetable soup, beet-stained hands and all, pretending to be involved in a murder. We sit at the dining table for a change. I confess to you that I am scared, that my mother's undoing will be my own, that you have inherited your father's legacy, that plaques and tangles will start to grow, that tomorrow a plague will come to devour us both. Before we're lost in a thicket of snarls, before our synapses clump up, we pretend we're back in Ia, getting drunk on our terrace, feeding cold cuts to the feral cats. You're lounging by the pool in Golgotha, drinking a kingfisher, flirting with the waitstaff. We're running from the sweet puppies, nipping at our heels outside the Gali Temple. We're in a hotel in Brussels, running a bath. We're ambling through the Tiergarten, Talking with the crakes and coots, we're in a mall in Mumbai, trying on salwar suits. That evening at Sandy Bell's, when Patty Riley affectionately pantomimed an aggressive Glaswegian, screaming, "Ay, they'll cut you open like a fish, his hand a little close, too close to my abdomen. That night on Prinzengracht, when we should have gone along with the bartender who was waving us in to join the locals singing Billy Holiday songs. That summer we drove to Provincetown in your red tercel, you in a red tank top, your hair in a bun. Me and my Daisy Dukes with cocoa bean lipstick on. We're doing 60 on Interstate 95, singing along to the kick inside. We drive through Cranston, Providence, Swansea. We snack on wasabi peas and roasted green tea. With wind-whipped hair and sunglasses on, I'll sing you a love song. Honey child, when our day is done, after the 10,000th goodnight kiss, the last restless Sunday, when will you notice the end? Will it be over cups of tea? I will tell you the same story again, the one I told you last night and the week before. I'll wander off to the laundry room. It will take me four hours to do a load. I'll fumble with my sari. Shoelaces will undo me. I'll want to tell you something. It will be something about love. But all that will come out instead is a cackling at myself. Ah ha ha ha. The inside of my skull, a tangle of knotted moments. You upside down, drying your hair, caught in crevices, buried alive. My lamb soon will be a bloody mess, 
Two slow and oily engines of spittle and shit, and no perfume on God's green earth will hide the stink of us. Will it come to this? No, it will not. I will snuff you out if you will retire me. We two will have been here long enough. Look, here are cousins from car crashes. Here are childhoods that were cut in half. There is Sarah Jane who played guitar in my band. Here is Nazia who I loved so much. There is Leila, my sister in arms. Sweet Maya and Mala, why did we lose touch? There is Auntie Sarita in a shimmering kurta. I must tell her that I kept all her recipes and thought of her every time I made Tarkadal. Oh dear Lavinia, you impetuous pup, where did you run off to that hot August morning? We scoured all of Scotia, but there was no trace at all. I never had a chance to take you swimming in the falls. Hello, Selina, it's been so long. We should have been better friends at school, I know. But I wrote you postcards, aerograms, birthday cards, the lot. That was a difficult year. But I tried, my dear. I tried. Stage, the Streaming Age podcast was brought to you by Tissim Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Remember to visit our website to experience Himali's work on www.stage.tba21.org. If you enjoyed listening and want to stay up to date with future episodes, please do subscribe to our podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Reviews and shares are always deeply appreciated. Today's artist was Himali Singh Soin. The interviews were conducted by Sky Rondati Thomas. The editor-in-chief of Stage is Francesca Thyssen-Bornemisa. Carlos Surros is the director of Thyssen-Bornemisa Art Contemporary. Soledad Gutierrez-Rodriguez is our content curator. Our producers are Soledad and myself, Igor Ramirez Garcia Peralta. Ina Speranda and Gidra Bellotova are our project managers. Elena Utrilla is our production assistant. This episode was edited by Ana Esteban. Our theme music is by Carl Michael von Hauswolf. Thank you for listening.